How many of you have had a relationship in your life where, um, you know, you don't really want to be mean, but they kind of just suck the life out of you because there was something in them that seemed to just pull, pull, pull out of you, and every chance you get, they're always trying to take something from you but not put into you? Oh, yeah. Okay, quite a few hands. How many of you have spent hours and hours and hours having conversations with people to try to get them to understand your point of view, but they could never seem to hear what you're trying to say? Oh, wow. Okay, good. How many of you are the person that just can't do the hearing? All right. So um, let me give you a quick backstory, and then we'll, we'll jump into this. Um, I've been in church ministry now for about three decades. And one of the things that we realized earlier on from the moment that I started in ministry is there were always seemed to be people that would come to church that in the process of having pretty big ideas and giftings, um, all sorts of things that you want to do you know a lot of people come to church with an idea that we want to get involved good thing totally good we want that but then there were the ones that seemed to want to be able to do things that they didn't have the emotional ability to carry out and so then you're you're stuck wondering what do you do with these people do you shove them to the side and ignore them no we don't want to do that do you do you risk maybe trying to sit down and tell them the truth and try to sort of reason to help them understand what the dilemma is. We normally do that, but then that usually will come with a price because you never really know how emotionally mature a person is to be able to hear the truth about themselves. So what we began to discover um, in just about every place that I've been on staff at is that there were lots of people who had varying degrees of what we call emotional intelligence and so just like we can measure our ability or our intellect to be able to cognitively understand things and apply principles they also began to find that the emotional or the um, IQ the intellectual quotient often wasn't a real indicator of how successful someone was going to be in their life so you could theoretically, in studies, proved it that you could be some of the most brilliant people in the world, but your personal life be in shambles. And so they began to start to understand that just as we have an, an, an intelligence quotient or an IQ, that we must also have what they call an e emotional quotient, which is the measurement of how emotionally smart you are. And so... The reason why we thought it would be a good idea to maybe go into some of this with you for the next couple of weeks is to really start to have everyone in the room thoroughly equipped. So the scripture talks about that the Lord wants us to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's my belief that the people of God really ought to be the most equipped people in the world in every area of our lives. So... We want, we want marriage, we want biblical training, we, want, we really want the best equipping out there in every single area. And so to fail to really address the emotional intelligence that many of us live by and don't even realize that we do, is to really help you to understand that 
what is really going to determine the quality of your life isn't as much your intellectual smartness as much as your emotional smartness. And so tonight, the reason why we're doing this is that we want you to be thoroughly equipped because we want the quality of your relationships to rise. We want the quality of your careers to rise. We want the quality of your witness for Christ and your relationships with the body of Christ to rise. And so the way that we do that is that we have to begin to understand that we have an emotional intelligence just as we do a cognitive intelligence. In addition to that, I would also say this, that just as we have a physical age, we also have an emotional age. And so that theoretically you could be a 50-year-old that has the emotional age of a 12-year-old. And we'll get into some of that. But the idea is that we want our emotional life to match the maturity of our physical life. And in some, and in really, for all intents and purposes, to even exceed where we are physically. And so tonight we're going to start probably for two weeks. Um, if you want to go ahead and pass that out, that's fine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some notes. And just as a forerunner, I normally teach this class in, in the context of leadership development when I do leadership development for teams. But I'm going to pull this out. And so the notes that I'm going to give you tonight are very thorough, and there's a lot to it. And so I want you to take a deep breath because there's no way I'm going to cover all of it in the next two weeks. But I wanted to go ahead and just give you the full set of notes so that if you're interested enough to continue on, and to really make a commitment to develop yourself and your emotional intelligence, that's a good place to start. Now, these notes aren't all inclusive by any stretch of the imagination, but they absolutely will point you a direction that you need to go. So what I want to say, um, and I'm going to jump around, and when I'm actually talking in a couple of these places, I'll tell you what number I'm on just so you can kind of read along. But I'm, I'm definitely not going to just read through my notes, so I've done this enough to where I'll probably just talk through some of it and give you lots of examples. Now, what I want to do tonight, yes, ma'am. Oh, all right. So I'm going to keep talking. So what I intend to do tonight is a couple of things. I'm going to try to keep this about the 45-minute mark, and then about 7.45 or so, I'm going to stop teaching, and, then I, and I'm going to start ask, allowing you to ask questions. So what I want to encourage you to do, I thought about, well, maybe we should let you ask questions the whole time, but then we'd get derailed, so we don't want to do that. So if you'll write your questions down, and as much as I can, I'll take that last 15 minutes, and if it goes over, I'll hang out here for a little while, and I'll answer questions as much as you want. If I forget to repeat your question in the mic, remind me to do that so that it picks it up on whatever recordings that we're going to do. All right, so Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you that you gave us emotions, and so we bless emotions in this room tonight. We're not afraid of them. We don't need to reject them. They're a part of who we are. We need to understand their proper place. And Lord, we pray that you would raise our emotional ages and our emotional intelligence tonight. We pray that you would expand and bring excellence to all of our relationships, all of our endeavors, and that as we begin to understand 
how to walk in, in, a, in, a, in a greater emotional intelligence, that you would give us the desire and the anointing and the understanding to begin to raise and to deal with who we are emotionally and begin to raise our emotional intelligence. So we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So people who have a high emotional intelligence generally have a really high self-awareness. They have a high awareness of the emotions of others, and they're conscious of how they come across to others, and they impact their emotions. The emotional intelligent tend to be the most resilient, the most flexible, the most optimistic people. They work, they manage, they change well, and they maintain healthy relationships with coworkers. So when I say emotional intelligence, what I'm talking about is how intelligent am I in my emotions? And so if I could break this down for you in three basic concepts, here's really how you need to understand emotional intelligence. It is number one, becoming self-aware and understanding who I am in my internal world. Who, what, is, what is in my life? And so uh, I've done a lot of inner healing and working through with helping people, you know, get free of a lot of different things. And in the process of doing that, I began to understand that there were these intersections between emotional intelligence and in inner healing or the prosperity of our soul. And so what you begin to understand is many times the reason why we lack emotional intelligence is there's damage that drives that. And so when we begin to understand where the damage is, and so I'm going to just start this off the right way. Really, the way you can understand damage in your soul is really one thing. It's when our soul gets programmed around something. And so what we're trying to do when we, when we renew the mind, excuse me, is that we are really becoming aware and coming out of or getting rid of the bad programming that we experienced either around trauma or around sin in general. And so they say that, um, I heard it said this way one time, that the longer a person is sick, right, the more they forget what it feels like to feel healthy. So, so understand that the longer that your body isn't well, you actually forget what it feels like to feel well. And so what we understand about trauma and about programming is most of us carry programming in our soul that we've had all of our lives. And that programming comes from literally every single place that you get stimuli. That's why when, I, when you can reduce it down and understand that freedom in our lives really isn't that complicated. It's understanding what we're in agreement with that we shouldn't be. So understanding that uh, we don't have to go through complex theologies, we just understand that he is truth, that I'll know the truth intimately in, in a relationship, just not cognitively, but in every area of my being, I come into relationship with truth, and then that truth helps me to understand what I should be in agreement with, and my programming is the thing that I should come out of agreement with. So understanding that, then realizing that the places in my life where I've experienced trauma and I've, and, I've, and I've developed programming, understand that at the places of that trauma, my emotional age will stop growing if I don't handle it the right way. That's why you can have a 60-year-old who will throw a temper tandem just like a 12-year-old would or a 6-year-old. And so the idea is the reason why 
we're having an issue like that is because in our emotional age, we haven't learned to become self-aware enough to be able to deal with and understand what's pushing our emotions. With me? So, so I could say then that emotional intelligence first is learning how to be aware of my emotions and then let me add something to it and not using them to make victims of others. So in other words, when I become self-aware, when I understand why I'm experiencing the emotions that I do, when I begin to understand that there are things programming that pushes my emotions and pushes me into emotional reactions in some regard, then I start to understand that the way to begin to grow my emotional t intelligence is to deal with my bad programming. All right? Secondly, the idea is that I can't live my life so self-centered that I'm not aware of other people's emotions. Now, one of the things you're going to hear me say a lot, especially if I'm sitting down with you one-on-one, is it is not your job to manage other people's emotions. And so what that means is, um, the Bible says that I'm called to speak the truth in love. So the Bible tells me how to speak the truth, but it doesn't tell me not to. And most often, the reason why we won't say the truth is because we're more interested in managing somebody's emotions than we are the truth that could set them free. So what we have to understand then is, is that I'm called to speak truth. I'm called to give it to you in a heart of love, not to beat you and destroy you. But it is up to you, not me, to decide how you receive it and if you receive it. So why that's important is I don't use whether or not I confront or I'm willing to be honest about a situation. I don't gauge whether or not I'm going to do that based on what I think your reaction to it's going to be. So understand that if we go through life not doing things we should do based upon our fear of how the person's going to react to it, then essentially we're allowing what we believe their reaction to be to control us. All right? So Christians, uh, I, I'm going to tell you, we are, and I, I wouldn't say Christians in general. Let me flip that around. Christians should be the best there is at confrontation. You know why? Because we have a capacity to confront in love the way the world does not. So therefore, we should be at a place of emotional intelligence where we don't avoid like most of us do, but yet we're able to speak the truth in love and to confront. Now, confront is an interesting word. I was talking to Cliff about this not too long ago, and culture has changed that word to mean something negative. But at the basis of confrontation is really just the core meaning of face-to-face. -face. That's all it means. It means I'm willing to come face-to-face -face with you and talk about an issue. There's no emotional animation to that. There's no supercharged anger. There's no negative emotional energy that has to be attached to that. If I hunger for truth, I should be a person that's easy to talk to, and you should be able to tell me and to put on the table anything you need to say to me in love, right? 
But now I'm going to give, I'm going to throw one twist to that. That yes, we are supposed to speak the truth in love. Say that with me. I am supposed to speak the truth in love. But here's the clincher. You really demonstrate that you love truth when you're not worried about the package that it comes wrapped in. So in other words, if I really hunger for truth, I'm going to ignore the package and I'm going to open up the gift and receive it. So, why, so emotionally intelligent really means having a, a capacity to hear and receive and not often have to dictate the terms in which I receive it or I get it, right? Now, biblically, I want to speak the truth in love, but I'm saying if I'm a real lover of truth, I'm going to not worry about how you gave it to me. I'm going to focus on what you're saying, all right? So the second part of that is understanding that I should be emotionally aware of you. That if you look at the basis of what the Bible says we live out of in community, which is to love one another, my heart to love you as another believer is to be aware of your emotional life. What kind of impact uh, am I having on your emotional life? So one of my personal uh, mission statements, so to speak, is this, that when I encounter people, I want to leave them better off than when they first or when they when they first met me. So in other words, I want to make huge deposits in the people that I talk to that understand and make them better off emotionally and in their walk with God. And so the way that I handle myself when I'm talking to people is I'm always asking myself and, and asking the Lord, what can I say and what can I do for this person that's going to show them the love of God? That's the first thing I ask. And so that is a level of emotional awareness that says it's not about me, what I'm doing all the time. It's also being aware of other people. Now, you'll discover that in further on down in these notes that they did lots of different studies and surveys, and they found out that the greatest leaders in the world all had one thing in common, a lot of things, but this one thing they all possessed, and that was a very high emotional intelligence. They were able to understand the nature of people's emotions, and through their leadership, they were able to navigate organizations through change and the understanding that while we're navigating through change, that the way we help people through change is that we deal with where they are emotionally. So if I come out and I say, here's the 10 things that we're doing to change heart of the Father right now, and I tell you what that list is, that's really not going to potentially impact your heart at all. But if I understand what the change means to you and how it impacts your life, and I start talking about and communicating that change in a way that hits you emotionally, that changes this game altogether. And so to understand that even in all of our relationships, if I'm a t one of the personality types that isn't as easily in touch with their emotions as others, like so for my temperament, I'm a, I'm a total emotional relater. Like the first thing I'm going to do is start looking at you and trying to connect with you emotionally. And what I mean by that is if I feel like you're a brick wall, that's going to make me work a lot harder because I want to pull out emotion. You know, I want to, the Proverbs talks about the, the counsels of a man's heart are like water and a wise man comes along and drives them out, or draws it out. If I feel like you're a brick wall, I'm going to work hard to start drawing. 
Because there's something in me that, that understands and, and needs to feel like I'm connecting with you on, uh, on an emotional level. If I don't, it kind of throws me off my game, and I'm like, hmm. But what we have to understand is, is that in our emotional intelligence, we have to purposefully become aware of other people. That means in conversations, we need to start learning and reading the cues and the body language of people. We need to understand how what I'm saying is impacting the other person, how they're being treated. Because to do so means, as Scripture says in various places, we want to love one another sincerely. We want to love one another with authenticity. We want to love one another well. And so in order to love one another, we have to be willing to actually make the investment and understand where people are in their emotions, just like in every area of their life. So the best leaders understand how their leadership impacts people emotionally. With me? All right, so going on. So if I can give you the basics of that, let's cover tonight, just get, a, get some understanding about emotions, and I'm going to talk around it. And then next week, we're actually going to get into the core skills that you're going to need to possess in order to have a high emotional intelligence. So I'm going to run through this um, fairly quickly. So an I, example of a high EQ, what's a high EQ? Many truths we cling to depend on our point of view. So when Yoda said that, he was ex exhibiting a high level of emotional intelligence because he was demonstrating that his understanding of emotions and how human dynamics work. But in contrast, I think Smithers picked me because of my motivational skills. Everyone says that they have to work a lot harder when I'm around. And so Homer Simpson was demonstrating a low EQ. Why was that? Because he lacked self-awareness. In other words, he made everybody work harder and he impacted them in a negative way and didn't care. So again, well, um, that's just the way I am. I don't care. Well, then you don't really love people and you have a really low emotional uh, intelligence. And because of that, the quality of your relationships are going to suffer. Can I just say that if people have to survive you, there's a problem. All right, so moving, moving forward, I'm going to jump into 1.7. What we need to understand about emotions is they actually do have an impact on the body. So when you understand that, just like when you experience trauma, that your body can actually remember trauma. In piano, when you play, if any of you piano players know, you know that you can play the piano so much that your fingers develop a muscle memory and many times I can play a whole lot of songs that I played all the time and without ever looking at the piano because my fingers remember what, what, how they move across the keys and the distance and the, and the positions to put them in and the chord progressions in the song. And so just like in your body, um, I was telling the class today, we were talking a little bit about this. I was in a car accident one time and as I felt my, uh, my car slamming into the other car, I remember, my, I remember my whole body tensing up and I could feel fear go all throughout my body. And I remember that for a few days, it might have even been longer than that, every time I got in my car after that, I would panic. And I would feel the, I would feel the trauma of that situation and I would feel the fear grip, grip my body. It wasn't even just an emotional thing, I could feel it. I would tense up 
And so the emotional part of that trauma actually carried, my body had a memory of it just like my emotions did. So when we get angry, what happens is blood will actually start to naturally flow to our hands. And the reason why is it makes it easier to grab a weapon. When we get angry, it, it, it makes it a lot easier when that blood flows to your hands to strike a foe. Your heart rate increases, hormones get released, and a, gener- and, a, and a pulse of energy and adrenaline is fueled because your body recognizes something in the anger that there's a threat that you need to brace yourself for. When you get fear, blood will flow to the large skeletal muscles. And just like the legs, making it easier for you to run. So if you perceive a threat that you need to get away with, blood goes to your legs, strengthens the muscle, and gives you that extra added push to get out of there, the flight part of that. And uh, your body might even freeze for a moment, allowing time to gauge if, the, if it's better to fight or take flight. And circuits in your emotional center of the brain trigger a, bl- a flood of hormones that put the body on alert and ready for action while attention is fixated on the threat. Happiness is a positive emotion. So what happiness does is it increases the activity of the brain center that inhibits negative feelings. So happiness literally caught, makes it hard for you to be negative. And then when it does that, this increases available energy and it quiets your worry, puts the body into rest and facilitates positive attitudes, releases hormones and endorphins that actually have a physical response in your body that facilitates the whole experience of being happy. This is why the Bible says a merry heart does good like a medicine. Um, love, now here's, a, here's an interesting one, has the opposite effect of fight or flight. And what it does is it releases a wide set of reactions that generate a feeling of calm, contentment, and cooperation. And for half the students at Maranatha, the butterfly effect in your stomachs. And so what ends up taking place is love actually has an effect on us emotionally and it has an effect on us even in our physical body, and it inhibits some things and brings out others, but it puts us in a relaxed state. This is why when I'm in the um, inner healing route sometimes, what I'll really help us to understand is that at the emotional level, anger is really just a fruit of a root. It's not the root. And if I peel back anger, then what I'm really going to find driving the anger is fear. And that's why when people get mad at me, the first thing I'm going to ask them is, what are you afraid of? I'm going to try to help them to understand what that fear is that's pushing them into anger because they feel like they can't control. And then the next thing I'm going to realize is help them to see that, that fear really isn't your root either. That if I peel back fear, then really at the heart of it all is the lack of love in your life. Because again, if you look at the very root of what causes us to really come into emotional or or soul trauma is to understand that these areas in our lives where we simply haven't felt loved are are places in our life where we, we find it hard later on in life to ever receive love. And so what ends up taking place is, is that love really does come to a place where when we feel it emotionally and we, and we experience it cognitively, then we start to understand that love really does heal all wounds. 
And so the answer to every single emotional trauma or damage in our life really and truly is the love of God. Understanding that we're called to be rooted and grounded in love, put in the love of God to such a way that we encounter that at every dimension, every area of our soul, and out of that it begins to help us get free of all the bad programming and, and put in new programming that's centered around righteousness and the presence of God in our life and not the trauma that we experienced in the past. So um, even in sadness, what we understand is that sadness actually has an impact on the body in that when we experience loss or disappointment, it literally drops our energy level it takes our enthusiasm away for life's activity. It deepens, and as we start to ap approach depression, it actually slows down our metabolism, and this creates the opportunity to mourn a loss or a frustrated hope. The worst thing that you could ever do is ignore your emotions and rob yourself of the opportunity to grieve. When you have hard things come your way, you need to feel it, and you need to grieve through it. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying that we send you into manic depression, but I'm telling you that your emotions have an impact on the body that essentially forces you to slow down so that you can start taking the time to process through what's going on. Now, and the way the Lord wants you to do that is the biblical way. Why so downcast, O my soul, David said. Put your hope in God. So David first recognized that his soul was downcast. He didn't ignore that like most of us do. He wasn't living in denial, and he wasn't telling himself lies to get himself out of that. He slowed down and he owned what he was emotionally feeling, and then he brought the prescription to it, which is the truth of the word, which brought hope back into his life. Put your hope in God. And so what we have to understand is that even grieving, all of these emotions in our life actually have an impact on the body and it alters us temporarily so that we can give it the corresponding thing. So that what I want to say to you tonight is that your emotions are not a guide, but they are a gauge. And so what we have to learn how to do is to use our emotions in a way that helps us to see where we should be looking in our internal world because, the, because our body or our emotions are trying to get our attention that something's not quite right that we need to deal with. So um, how do your emotions affect the brain? Well, uh, I won't get too technical. If you have questions, see Cliff. <laughs> Just kidding, sort of. Um, thalamus and the brainstem becomes dominant and feels like we are under attack or stress. So guided by instincts, when we're active, when it's active, your brain literally starts scanning the environments for threats. You become more aware of your or surroundings and what could possibly bring a threat, threat to you. Your limbic system, which is what they call your emotional brain, is, a, is associated with instinctive negative emotions. Your neocortex is where problem-solving, planning, decision-making, and complex tasks. And then number four, we need to understand that our brain really is wired to prefer emotions. That it's a, when a signal is sent to the brain, it passes through that limbic system before it hits that frontal lobe. And that's why many times we feel something before we cognitively reason through it. 
you ever heard that? I don't know what happened. I just went bananas. My head just exploded. I don't know what came over me. And so the experts call that neural hijacking. When you, you, your emotions spin out of control, you don't seem to have reason all of a sudden. It's a popular thing in court cases, uh, you know, insanity plea, temporary insanity. And that is, by the way, a real thing in some cases. But what happens is it hijacks the rest of your brain. And so this hijacking occurs and instantly begins to trigger a reaction just before the neocortex, the thinking part of your brain, actually has a chance to fully embrace what's happening and decide what the cognitive, realistic, right thing would be to do. We emotionally fly off the handle and just lose emotional control. Now, some of us have learned, and emotionally intelligent have learned, not to let your emotions control you. And more importantly than that, not to let your emotions control others. And so um, there's this really interesting little thing called the amygdala, which is Greek for almond, which is an almond-shaped cluster of interconnected structures in your brain. And then what ends up happening, what they found out is that your amygdala is really the seat of your passion. When you're passionate about something, your amygdala is engaged. And what they found was really interesting. One study... uh, Written under, it was called, the title of it was The Case of the Man with No Feelings. One young man whose amygdala had been surgically removed in order to control the severe seizures that he'd been experiencing. Once they removed it, became completely uninterested in people altogether and preferred to just sit in isolation with no human contact whatsoever. In the process of that, he was perfectly capable of having conversation, yet he no longer emotionally recognized close friends, relatives, or even his mother, and he remained impassive in the face of their anguish or his indifference. In other words, they mourned the loss of who he was, and he could feel no emotion because of it. Without the amygdala, he seemed to have lost all recognition of his feeling as well as any feelings about his feelings. And so you could understand in some respects that the amygdala acts as a storehouse of emotional memory and thus of your significance itself. Life without your amygdala is a life stripped of personal meaning. Would you agree with that, Cliff? All right. So let me get into this one area here in 110. 3 John says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So understand, and if you don't remember anything else, remember this, that you cannot, believe, you cannot live above what you believe. That understand that the quality of, your, of life that you're experiencing right now or the lack of that quality is 100% related to what you believe. So let me give you an example. What I believe about money determines how I handle money. So in other words, if I, if I grew up with parents that thought it was just the normal thing to always be in debt and paying off credit cards, I'm going to believe and be taught that carrying consumer debt is a normal thing and that I'm going to live my life in cycles of paying off debt all the time. 
when what we start to understand is that is a rat race that we don't want to get into because you will always pay way more than interest many times if you carry it long term than the original cost of what it is you bought on credit. So if I think that I'm never going to rise above living off of credit cards, then I will never handle money the right way, right? So you look at um, situations, I give the example this morning to the students that you can take a person out of a particular culture, and if that culture is centered around poverty mindsets, and then suddenly they make it big in the sports world or in the music world or some form of entertainment, that you can take them out of the environment, but the environment never gets out of them and they lose it because those mindsets that kept them in poverty follow them even when they have money. So not understanding the concept that what we have in our soul actually is directly uh, the result of how we're living our lives, or in other words, what we really believe determines how I live my life, and I'm living out cycles that I'm unaware of because I simply believe the wrong thing. So what we have to understand is even in our relationships, understanding that, and this, this is the thing that blows my mind, I've done marriage counseling and stuff for years, and inevitably I have never once sat down with a couple who, who didn't say to me, I believe we're going to have the most amazing marriage. I want the most amazing marriage. I want, I want a husband that loves me deeply. I want a wife that really affirms me and, and all these things. And they've got these really big ideas about the marriage made in heaven and the fairy tale marriage. And the, what I have to help them understand is, is that the quality of your marriage is directly determined by the level of unhealthiness that you bring to it. We need to pause for a minute and think about that. So I'm not telling you, I'm not trying to be negative or demotivate. What I'm saying is we have to come out of fairy tale world and start realizing that every single time that I've done marriage counseling, your marriage was never the problem. It's who you brought into it. And so again, marriage counseling and, and, and having high quality relationships with your spouse is directly dependent upon your level and your ability to have an emotionally intelligent and healthy relationship. I was telling the students the other day, I posted some posts on Facebook a while back, and this was just a no-brainer. I was just kind of thinking about, just not even really giving it a lot of thought. And I made the comment that the level of unhealthiness that I'm willing to tolerate in my relationships really determines how good those relationships are going to be. In other words, if I want the right thing, I have to do the right things to get the right thing, right? So, so again, if, if I believe that in a relationship, and this is the definition of codependence, that if I stay in a relationship where the, where, where the bad that you're giving me outweighs the good, then really what I'm saying is I believe I'm getting the love that I think I deserve. Because think about that. In a relationship... In a healthy relationship, I have to be willing to bring healthiness to it. And if I bring unhealthiness to it, then I'm going to affect the quality of that relationship. And it's not the other person's fault. It's my fault. That's why marital problems are never just one person, ever. And what, I'm, what I want to encourage you with is that the quality of our relationships in our romantic lives, in our friendships, all hinge upon our ability to rightly have 
healthy relationships. And if we don't understand that emotionally intelligent people are aware of the people that they're in relationships with, I won't really ever have a healthy relationship. My wife will get on to me all the time. You're not filling the love bank, Derek. She was saying that to me recently. And it's true. It's absolutely true. Sometimes I become so aware of other things that I stop being as aware of her as I should be. That's low emotional intelligence, right? And so I have to kick that thing back up into gear and realize where my priorities are. And so what I believe about relationships is going to determine the quality. Let me give you an example. I was in a relationship with a person, a family member, who would have these explosions, these emotional explosions, and in, in the process of that, what would end up happening was um, I, I finally took it for a little while out of respect of who the family member was, but then at the same, th at the same target, I had to really realize that, that, that this person, when I said, I need you to not explode on me and vomit on me emotionally anymore, felt like that because I was a family member, it's her right to do that, and real family members are willing to let other family members do that. But I'm going to tell you, if you tolerate that level of unhealthiness, that is the highest that your relationship's ever going to go. So again, it's not the person's fault. It's my fault for allowing them to do it, right? And so understanding that, you know, I was telling the class also this morning that one of the things in my own childhood I lived with my dad and my stepmother from like 7 to 17. And for that period of my life, those 10 years, I lived in constant fear of my father who would raise his voice and beat up my stepmother. And I can remember, even as a young boy, um, waking up in the middle of the night to them all out fighting, fisting it out, and yelling at the top of their lungs and even as a 30-year-old, I would wake up with nightmares of my father yelling. That's how deep it affected me. And I would live in fear. And so this, this created quite the dilemma between Ginger and I because her and her family have this propensity. They love yelling. I mean, they do. You get their whole family in a, in, in around the table, and it's loud. Like, it makes me nervous. I kind of want to medicate, you know. <laughs> I'm kidding. Or not. But... But anyway, so what we had to do is the thing that would set me off is when Ginger would raise her voice and it would trigger something in me. And I wouldn't get angry. It would remind me of the fear that I used to live in with my father. And so two things had to happen. She worked on changing that and then I worked on getting free of the fear of it. But understanding that that one thing was affecting the quality of our relationship. And so understanding that in when we start talking about the prosperity of our soul, what I believe about something is really going to determine the quality of, of that something in my life. And so moving on, understanding that emotions, what they do more than anything is they reflect what I believe. So I'll use the term, I'll throw out the term emotional damage. That's not quite right because it's not that you're damaged or emotions. It's that the, the damage exists in some part of your soul and your emotions reflect what you believe. That's why many times I can look at an emotional reaction like when I had fear and then I realize that in that fear 
something around what I believed generated that fear. And I realized that every time somebody raised their voice to me, it made me think of my father and brought the trauma back of that. Just like in our relationship with God, when we begin to understand the places in our lives where we get disappointed with God, where we feel emotionally disconnected from God, and that even sometimes understanding how God responds and what he does, our belief in the quality of our relationship with God is 100% determined by what I believe about God or what I wrongly believe about God. I can tell you that one of the biggest mistakes I see Christians make is they stop feeling some kind of emotional thing in their devotions and suddenly the first thing they're going to ask is what am I doing wrong and they go into performance not because they're worried about feeling or, or as much about God they're trying to figure out how to get the, to perform to get that emotion back. So emotions are really real things, but we have to understand that in most of our internal theological world, God is double-minded, he's a schizophrenic, he's narcissistic, and he's all these things that in reality he really isn't. But if we really took an honest look at our, our programming, we would realize that most of us really don't trust God because we don't really believe the right things about him. The biggest lesson I learned is I stopped trying to get God to prove to me that he was good, and I gave him the benefit of the doubt and said, you are good, and everything else has to line up with that. So kind of wrapping up, how, what do we got? We're getting close. So 745. So I want to say one thing is that emotions are the mirror of your life. So many people will live largely unaware of their emotions and let me just kind of I'll fold into it this that the chronic problem that I see a lot of the times is that you and I have this propensity to live largely out of touch with our heart and so what you have to understand this whole idea that even in my own devotional life I don't spend every day talking at God all the time many times I sit before the Lord I'll put some worship music on and I'll listen and I'll ask the Lord to show me what's in my heart, what is moving in my heart, what's pressing in my heart. And I'll ask the Lord to begin to show me if anything is moving that shouldn't be there in my heart. So I live and examine the life and being emotionally aware, I live in touch with my heart. Because what ends up happening is if there are things pressing in my emotions that I'm not aware of, then what I'm going to end up doing is I'm going to make victims of other people out of my emotions. And so you and I, what we tend to do is, and I'm gonna, I'll kind of close it with this, is to understand that the biggest hindrance to our emotional life and growing emotional intelligence is that people are largely living in a crisis most of their lives, and they never come out of the crisis. And so what you have to understand then is that any time our psyche or our soul perceives a threat, we go into fight-or-flight mode, and something in us, depending on the magnitude of what we're facing, will shut our emotions down because you don't have time to pro cognitively and emotionally process through your house is burning down. You need to get out of the house. And so what ends up happening is I've met people, and inevitably when I do counseling with people, 
is the first thing I'm looking at is what level is the crisis in their life and how long have they been in it. Because the longer you stay in crisis, the more out of touch you become with your heart. And so you begin to realize that if your life has been defined by a series of crises one after the other, that odds are, whenever that crisis starts, and you may have known nothing but crisis, you're generally so out of emotional uh, you know, touch with yourself that people really can't even get into you emotionally and can't receive emotionally from you because you're not in touch emotionally. And so what you'll end up finding out, and, and uh, you know, some of you have heard a story, but you know, I went through a situation about three years ago that really brought up something in my childhood that I, I, I was aware of the memory, but, and it didn't feel like that big a deal until I came to the situation where someone had done something to me that I felt like had shamed me. I didn't feel like I was ashamed, but I felt like what this person did by uh, pushing me out in front of people and then stepping back and, and it created some confusion and then I felt like that in the process of that, he never did anything to clear it up. And he was the one that wanted it from the begin, the begin with. And in processing through, processing through the emotion, I was feeling like I had been shamed by somebody, but I wasn't able to tag what it was. Like, why was this such a big deal to me? And then I remembered all the way back one day when I, I'd gone through like six days of like being really deeply depressed and not really understanding what, what was going on. And then at the end of that, a, a brother had come over, he was an elder in the church, put his arms around me and he said, I deeply love you. And, uh, you know, I was weeping and I couldn't really get in touch with the emotion that I was feeling. But suddenly I shut the cognitive part down. I stopped trying to think through it. And before I knew what I was saying, I said, I feel like I've been shamed. And when I said that, I went all the way back to seven years old. Now, this, is, this wasn't repressed or anything else. This was something emotionally put me back in touch with the emotion that I felt when my, when my stepmother, because I was in there, you know, basically would be diagnosed in the future with PTSD because of the trauma that I was going through in my childhood. I was starting to have accidents and couldn't control and so I had an accident one day after a particularly nasty fight, and she flew off the handle and got so mad at me that she said, if you're going to look like a seven-year-old baby or act like one, you might as well look like one. And so she made me take off all my clothes. She put a towel around me like a diaper and shoved me out the back door and locked it to be humiliated by all my friends. I felt shamed. And so when this happened three years ago, that same feeling put me right back in touch with the emotional part of that trauma, and I began to realize that in that process, I had carried this feeling of being shamed all my life and didn't know it. I was so out of touch with my heart that this thing was controlling relationships that I had. It was actually influencing decisions that I was making. And largely, it had put me on a course in life that if I would have realized that, probably wouldn't done uh, made some of the decisions that I had made because many of those decisions were based out of the fact that I was feeling like I was a shameful person. Not ashamed, but someone had shamed and taken something from me. And so, to, and so to understand then this evening that 
what we're looking at is not only just understanding emotional intelligence and raising our intelligence, but we're also coming to the place of understanding why and what is pushing some of our unintelligence emotionally. What is it that's causing me to stay at a low level of emotional intelligence? What am I trapped in? What, what can I not get free of? At the place of my trauma, I'm usually stuck. And so what do I need to understand in order? What needs to get freed in me so that I can continue to grow and become the right emotional age that I should be? So that my emotions catch up with the, the rest of the maturity of my life. So that's, this is week one. Now I know this is heavy. So, but ne next week we'll actually get into the core skills or the core things that you need to understand about emotional uh, intelligence. So what questions do we have tonight? Okay. Anybody? Cog uh, I don't know that I'd go that deep. That's probably more um, Cliff's expertise than mine. But uh, what I'm just simply saying is that we own a soul that's cognitive. We own, we own a soul that, that, that is able to reason. And so within that, if we don't understand that in our soul life, we have a mind that processes and reasons, we have emotions that feel, and we have a will that's influenced both by our emotions and our soul, then what we have to understand is that in order to rightly exert the right type of influence on our will, that our soul has to become redeemed and influenced by righteousness, not by programming that's happened around sin. But it has to do with what you believe. Absolutely. Right. Well, I can only have as healthy a relationship as I am healthy and the other person's healthy. And so I know that's a broad category. I know that we're saying a lot in those simple statements. But you, you mentioned a couple things. So one thing I'll just say real quickly about codependence is you can really understand codependence in a couple of ways. But the three basic ways that I understand it is is that I'm in a, an abusive relationship and I'm willing to take it because I think I'm getting the love I deserve. 
So until you understand that God values and he establishes the value on your life, not some humanistic idea or anything, God says what's valuable, and I have to believe what he says, not some other thing. My gifts don't make me valuable, my talents don't make me valuable, all that. The world says it does, but the Lord told me what my value was when he bankrupted heaven for me. So because of that, I need to live with an awareness that when I allow people to devalue me, I'm coming into agreement with what they're saying is not valuable. Now again, they brought it up in class that we can use that and, and flip it around to the other side and use that same thought as a way to control people. But I'm simply saying, I don't really see anywhere that the Lord wants you to stay in an abusive relationship whether that's through leaders or whether that's through any other thing. So again, in order for you not to be involved in unhealthy relationships, you first have to understand what the Bible says about your value. And I'm not talking about egocentrical or pride or, or any of that stuff. So the first thing about codependence is to understand that I'm usually going to stay in a relationship because something in me believes I deserve what I'm getting. Uh, in some respects, we can even have a codependence on God. The hardship that I'm going through in my life, I deserve because I'm a sinner. Or I'm reaping what I sowed. But if you, if you really were reaping what you deserved, Jesus would have never went to the cross for you. Now, I'm not making a big theological statement here. I'm just simply saying that if, if we believe that the quality of my walk with God and all the pain and all the bad that I'm experiencing is because I deserve it, no wonder our, our walk with God suffers so much. So again, we don't want codependence. And then the last thing that I would say, and this happens a lot in ministry, is that I want something bad enough because I think a leader is going to give it to me, whether, where I, whether I want them to launch me into ministry, I want to use their influence, I want to get something from them. And so I'm willing to take the bad because I think the good I'm getting from them is going to get me what I want. So you understand that many times the reason why I'm in a codependent relationship is I really want something and I'm using the other person to get it. So I'm willing to take any negative stuff or any unhealthiness because I'm really wanting to get what I want and I'm willing to go through that. Yes. Um, hmm, on, on what part? Just on emotional intelligence or? Okay, um, yeah, let me, let me get a list of things. I'm, I'm generally kind of uh, hesitant to, to recommend too much because there are parts that I do like on some things and other parts where I want to avoid humanism altogether because humanism doesn't do anything, right? It just keeps you human. So, um, yes, I can give you some good um, spiritual-based books, but, but understanding that most of a lot of this stuff, what's written is a mixed bag, and some of it's a mess theologically. I'm just going to be honest with you. So I don't want to give you bad theology while I'm helping you grow emotionally. Uh, so I will get back to you on that. Honey, will you? Huh? Who am I? 
Um, well, some say I'm a heretic. The others say, no. So uh, right now I function as the campus pastor for Maranatha. So whatever I am or not, blame Jeremiah Johnson. All right, so. <laughs> yeah, uh, right over there. Okay, so we are going to actually get into the last two weeks of February, how to deal with conflict, which we will hit um, confrontation head on. But uh, again, I'm going to refer us back to a conversation that I actually had with Cliff, and I like what he said, that the meaning of the word confrontation carries with it a stigma that evokes really strong emotion in people. So I understand that. All I'm simply saying is that you and I need to be really matured and grown in love. And so again, what I would say to you is the principle that I understand and operate in a lot is what I seek first, I'm going to order my life around. That's why in, 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 in relationship to emotional healing and getting free, when a person says I need to get free, I'm not going to work at your damage because if I, if, I, if I center the solution around damage, I'm orienting your life around pursuing something that's negative from the very beginning. So when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the other things he talked about in the verses before that would be added unto you, what he really taught us is a principle and that principle is I need to order myself around the right thing. So let me, let me put that in context. So when it comes to understanding what I need, if I, if I want to move in the gifts of the Spirit, then, then 1 Corinthians 12 says that I should pursue what? Love, but then desire what? So what should I be seeking? Love. And then how could when I'm truly loving not how could i not operate in the gifts of the spirit as an as a manifestation of love so so again in confrontation and in healing understanding that that what i'm out to do is to mature and grow in love and so what i will point you to that is love that's the goal and so i'll say this a lot of times that freedom most of the time we're we're, we're wrong off the gate because we don't have the definition, the right definition of freedom. Freedom is not the absence of something in your life. You realize that, right? Hey, I've got a pornography problem. What's freedom mean to you? I don't look at pornography anymore. That's not freedom. That's just a slave who's learned how to change his behavior. So Jesus doesn't come to make us slaves and keep us slaves and do behavior modification. He comes to take us out of prison. You see what I'm saying? And so when it comes down to confronting, it's not that, or what I'm really talking about more than anything is that we can't live our life in avoidance and avoiding tough conversations. So what we need to do is learn how to throw an issue out on the table, and we're going to do that in the conflict res. I'm going to give you some practical steps on how to do that, 
But again, we need to be willing to own issues instead of ignoring them. In most families, it's the, there's always this, this big fat hippo in the room that nobody wants to talk about. It's like this pink elephant or whatever. And then suddenly we're, we just want to ignore it and hoping it'll go away. And so if we don't learn how to talk and communicate outside of fear, then conflicts or problems will never resolve themselves. They only get bigger because I'm avoiding it. Yeah. All right. Now, I know that didn't quite answer, but we will get into that. Yes, sir. Come on, brother. Challenge? <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> Raul. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but the other part is, if we can approach people with giving the intent of giving them graceful ways out of their own situation. Yeah, that's good. Instead of enabling them. Right. Who else? Oh, Alice. All right. Yes, sir. Samuel first. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that is true, and that that is a walk that every single one of us a journey are on. And I, I would say that that falls into the category of Ephesians 4, 10, 11, where we are growing to the measure and the stature of Christ. So understand, if that is a, a measurement that I can grow to, then understand that Christ made the way for me to grow to his stature. And his stature on the cross was forgive them for they know not what they do. And he was able to say that out of a reality in his emotional life, not just his intellectual life. So when he said forgive them, 
his, his, his intellect or his decision or his emotions wasn't what were not betraying the decision he made to forgive. It means that every part of his being lined up with his understanding of forgiveness and in his emotional life, he had developed in maturity to such a degree that he had been so loved by God that no human effort could take him out of that love. I absolutely believe that or Paul never would have said that we could grow to the measure and stature of Christ. Yes. I'm like yes. Your okay. Everybody want to know the quiz? What the quiz is? Okay. You ready? Write this. Write this down. Ask your spouse. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that there are, and I, I I do place some value in quizzes. I I take them every time I see one, just out of curiosity. Quizzes are good. When we talk about eight dimensions of leadership, quiz, yes. When we talk about your temperament, yes, um, because it does help, help us to understand what your baseline is, what you default to in your temperament. Your emotional intelligence, the matrix that you're looking at right there, will actually be the quiz because it's going to show you what the core skills are, the competencies that are going to help you raise each, each of the um, dimensions, or I forget what I called them there, but each of the facets of emotional intelligence. What is it? Domains. Yeah, domains. So each domain has companies of its own, and these are good mile markers along the way that says, I need to focus in on these types of territories. So again, you want to start with self-awareness, because you're not going to be other, aware of other people until you're aware of yourself, right? So when you're in touch with who you are, then you're going to have the wherewithal to, um, to actually become aware of others. And uh, maybe next week I'll get into the difference between that and just kind of navel-gazing and being so self-conscious that you're not Christ-conscious. Because we realize God came to make us Christ-conscious, not self-conscious, right? So the idea is that we're not spending all of our life consumed with self. That's not the point at all. He, came, he wants to kill that, right? But what we, are, what we do want to do is live that inner, inner reflective life and we let the Word judge us. Right? We let righteousness permeate our lives. Alright. So praying you out. Um, let me see your notes. I don't want to log back in. So 1.17 was what? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. So what we're going to cover next week, the rest of this, I think you can get on your own. What I'm going to talk about next week, if you want to start at 1.15, we're going to go through what the five domains of emotional intelligence are. So again, when we talk about self-awareness, it's really understanding what about you needs to be aware and so when we talk about what really makes up um, emotional intelligence, let me just say this one thing, that there are lots of different theories about this, all right? So I've researched them, and I've gone through quite a few different approaches. This is the one that I like the most because it's the most thorough. So what you're really interested in is self-awareness. And why do you need to be self-aware? So that your emotions don't make victims out of other people. That's why. Uh, number two, you need self-regulation. That's learning how to get control of your emotional life 
And that's learning how to take the negative emotions that you might feel and channel them into something productive and not destructive. Uh, some of us will go into funks and we'll be like, uh, man, we get depressed for days. Well, how do you take depression that's not clinical or not you know, biological or something other than just going through life? How do you take that, understand it, use it as a gauge and channel that into something productive? Number three, it's self-motivation, that emotional intelligent people don't want to just live out the status quo and live just getting by with the minimum amount of effort to anything that you do. Because if that's you, you're going to suffer in every area of your life, especially on the job, because no one wants a person to work for them that doesn't have the motivation to do a good job, right? And then number four, it's social awareness. It's learning how to, when you're talking to people, how to empathize with what they're saying. If you're around me a lot, you'll go, oh my goodness. You know, I, I'm like, I'll, I'll touch people a lot. If you notice me, I, I touch people a lot, not inappropriately. But when I touch, you're passing emotion. You're telling the other person that they're valuable enough for you to touch. Now, I, I, but I'm also able to gauge when it's not appropriate at any level to do that. So social awareness is also understanding the right thing at the right time that's appropriate and when some things aren't appropriate. That's having a high emotional intelligence allows you to gauge social cues. Like right now when you guys are thinking, man, I wish you'd hurry up because I'm ready to go home. And then the last one is social skills, which really it comes down to all these core competencies. So those are the five domains. And then if you want to actually look at this intelligence, uh, this competency matrix, what I won't have time to do is go through every one of them point by point. But what I will go through is if we'll just take about 30 minutes to run through it next week, and I'll take the last half and let you ask any question about this matrix that you want. And if you want to make it ultra practical next week, I'll actually go through and uh, we'll, we'll talk about some of these tips at the end of it. Now, these aren't 1.7 is a, if you do all these things, you're going to be emotionally intelligent. That's the matrix. But what these tips do is they help to start putting you with, um, they start helping you putting in touch with techniques that you can learn. And I'll close with this one, is that the biggest thing we need to learn how to do is learn how to pause. We need to learn how to take a breath when you're talking. And, and you won't get it in this, but in, in Maranatha class, you take that pause so that you can develop the sister skill of emotional intelligence, which is active listening or reflective listening, meaning I'm listening to actually understand, not listening for the next opportunity to tell you what I want you to think. So, Father, it's our goal, and I know it's your goal, because we want what you want, not what we want. And so, Father, we ask you, Holy Spirit, you're the greatest teacher there ever was. You're the greatest counselor there ever, there ever was. And so we ask you to teach us and to counsel us and to grow us up to the full measure and the stature of Christ. And that we ask you to help us to become more emotionally aware of ourselves, to understand what's going on in our inner world and what's driving. And in some cases, to, 
We ask you to come in and speak peace to the inner storms in our inner world so that they stop creating storms on the outside of that world. And so, Father, we ask you that in this room, I ask you, and specifically, Holy Spirit, that you would minister to every single person in this room and that you would begin to lead them into a higher awareness of themselves, a higher awareness of other people, and then also a higher awareness of how they're impacting other people. And so, Father, we thank you that all things that you're growing us into, of all that, that you're maturing us in love, and you're teaching us how to love rightly and to how to love well. And so I pray that tonight, that this, that this class and the corresponding classes that happen, sessions over the next few weeks, would grow us and mature us in love. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.